Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers. Here we go. It's another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. So we step back into the ring, back into time, as we get wall to wall and treetop tall, with the Tennessee stud. Hey, Ron, what's going on in the great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee? Oh, man, beautiful day here, Dave. Uh, nothing but blue skies, man. A little warm, but uh, that's where it's been, I guess, all over the world, not just in our country, but <laughs> listening to the news, it sounds like uh, everybody's a little warm. It does. Every day feels like you're standing by the river in New Orleans and you're just steadily sweating, or at least that's my experience. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's got that New Orleans uh, all along that Gulf Coast down there, man. It's got some pretty good humidity. Yes, indeed. No doubt. Hey, Rodden, you know what? We keep talking about your horrible year of 1979, and I think it might be one of the greatest wrestling stories in history because it's filled with high spots followed by disasters last week's stud cast by the way was a great example of that well i guess you can say that again dave i mean the, the high spot last week was uh that all-time record crowd in the southeastern gulf coast city of dothan alabama in that football stadium but shortly after the tickets were counted uh, it turned into a disaster because there was questions about the legitimacy of the ticket count. So, I mean, if it ain't one thing, it's another. So then in the southeastern Knoxville territory, the disaster was the best card of the year, being entirely canceled by rain. Due that, that was in the last stud cast, number mm -hmm. 307, mm -hmm. you know, a couple of stud casts ago. Uh, and then that became a high spot in this last stud cast, 308, when we drew the biggest crowd since the Knoxville war began seven weeks earlier. So my life, man, was 1979, like a yo-yo, man, up and down, good and bad, changing so fast. I'm surprised I maintained my sanity through it all. Man. <laughs> a yo-yo, a roller coaster. Yeah, there are so many that we could say that it, that it looks like. All right. Everything you just mentioned, by the way, took place in the last stud cast, Ron. The title for this one really really intrigues this is studcast number 309 and the title is where did golden go and ox versus blackwell so it sounds like in this one jimmy golden disappeared and two literally huge stars were going to meet head to head so where do we ride first today how do we get this thing started well we're gonna open things up man with the card in knoxville on friday august the 3rd 1979 we're in August, man, of 1979 at this point. Uh, this was a very good card on that day, but it uh, had one major question from everybody. Uh, where was the hottest heel in the territory? Uh, Jimmy Golden had suddenly disappeared uh, right after his Southeastern Championship tag match that we had in the last stud cast. He had his new partner, Norvell Austin. They were against my brother and I. Uh, we had a wild, crazy match, and... Uh, and he had also missed, uh, he was going to also miss every booking in every city after that tag match. So it appeared hmm. he might have left the territory. So therefore, rather than have to substitute someone to take his place again, 
uh, for the following week, uh, he was just basically left off of all the upcoming cards after this. Uh, the, in fact, he's not even on this card of August the 3rd because he's not been around since, since he uh, disappeared. So we're going to talk about the TV to promote the new card, the results of the card, and then the attendance. And uh, then we're going to update everybody on Knoxville's five all-star card. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, this is going to ride south, man, into the southeastern Gulf Coast territory, <laughs> where we had an all-time record-breaking crowd in Dothan, Alabama, on the last stud cast. Uh, this week, we're going to return to Mobile, like we have been normally doing, doing Mobile. And then after the Dothan show uh, and the gross house uh, was a question about what the gross house actually was. Many things, man, started to break down in that territory. That's just what I needed. So it was a horrible situation where everybody was questioning everything. And luckily, there was some new talent arriving down south there. that was not going to be affected by all the unnecessary controversy of that Dothan Stadium event. So it was time for the booker at this point to do his job, calm everybody down, and get the ball rolling again. All right, so it sounds like a really another good one, Stud. I guess you want to start in Tennessee with the Knoxville card, Chill Howie Park Amphitheater, Friday night, August 3rd, 1979. That works for me, my man. Uh, this one opened up with a star man from Vern Gagne's AWA American Wrestling Association territory. Guy named Lord Alfred Hayes uh, made his only Southeastern appearance ever, actually, on this card. And uh, Hayes and I met in 1974 when I was working in St. Louis every other Friday night for Sam Muchnick, who was the president of the NWA at that time. And uh, Alfred got in touch with me and he asked if he could come and see what we were doing, man. Uh, he said, uh, You know, everybody in the country is talking about your territory, Ron. Uh, would you book me on a show so I can just take a look and see what you guys are doing? So uh, I had Dick Slater, who was the booker, and down uh, down up north, and uh, he he uh, put Alfred Hayes on the card against Eddie Mansfield, uh, and then another newcomer, Jerry Roberts, was in the second match, uh, and this was going to be his only Southeastern Knoxville appearance, just like Alfred Hayes, actually, mm -hmm. you know. But later on, about uh, two years, a little more than two years down the road, he's going to become a huge star in southeastern Gulf Coast. He's not going to be using this name, Jerry Roberts, that he started out with mm. as a young young guy. He's going to come in there and wrestle under his real name, Jock Ruggio. And uh, he was going to be facing the Leslie Smirnoff. Okay, I think you said Jacques Rougeau, the wrestler that was so popular in the Gulf Coast in the early 1980s. Jacques, of course, wrestled in Knoxville as Jerry Roberts in 1979. So wh why would he use another name? Well, you know, it wasn't uncommon for young wrestlers, Dave, uh, especially ones like Jacques, who had come out of Canada. He was totally unknown in the South to use another name in the early part of his career. And that was because, you know, as a young wrestler and until you improved dramatically, you were going to lose just about every match you had. You know, you were like a job boy for a couple of years there. And uh, they and then, uh, you know, so guys figured out if they used a name that wasn't their real name, that later on they might come back to the same territory where they had lost so many matches and use their real name and fans might forget Mm -hmm. what they were like as a loser and remember <laughs> them now as, as a winner. <laughs> okay. I'm with you on that. That's kind of interesting stud. I, I learned something new every stud cast and I bet everybody that's listening does the same. All right. So before we move on knowing now who those two guys were, those first two opening matches must've been really tremendous. I'd say any of the four wrestlers that opened the card were as good as any of the all-stars that would be wrestling the next night. I, that's not bad. I mean, when you're saying your first couple of, I'm saying your first couple of matches are better than anybody in the all-stars. So that's a, that's a pretty cool statement right there. All right. So what about the third match? Who was in that? Well, Kevin Sullivan, man, had turned heel for the first time in his career on Dick Slater. Uh, that was on the last stud cast. 
And uh, he was facing the very popular Dean Hope, uh, who was really over in Knoxville. Fans really loved the Hawaiian man. And it was going to be one of Kevin's first matches as a heel in his life. And in the latter part of his career, Kevin, he's going to become one of the best heels ever, man. As he, time goes on here in the 80s, wow, especially in the Florida Territory, he was awesome as a heel. He, he, ran, the, he ran the business down there, man. So there was three championship matches on this card. There was the United States Junior Heavyweight title on the line. Tony Charles was defending against uh, the original junkyard dog, Norvell Austin, who started calling himself that long time before the guy did that was in Mid-South. Uh, then the Southeastern tag belts were going to be at stake. My brother and I were going to be defending against the former champions, Tor Tanaka, and Mr. Fuji, managed by Gorgeous George Jr. And then the last title match was going to be for the Southeastern Championship. Dick Slater was going to be defending against the Mongolian Stomper, who was managed by Gorgeous George Jr. And uh, that match was going to be Lumberjack Rules, which meant wrestlers were going to be surrounding the ring to keep the contestants in. When they popped out, they would throw them back inside the ring. All right, so you're talking about a really great card right there. I noticed... As you said earlier, the very hot heel, Jimmy Golden, was not on this car. So I guess we're going to find out why at some point. So was he on the TV show to promote the card? Actually, he wasn't on that either, Dave. So, uh, oh, you know, he just kind of disappeared. The, the TV show opened with Rob and I to set with Les, and we watched two videos from the matches the night before. Uh, one of those matches was the pole battle roar, which Rob won when they showed that. And at the end of the night, uh, to us, Rob and I, the more important match that we watched next was the Southeastern Tag Championship match against Jimmy Golden and Norvell Austin. And in the tag video, it showed for all four of us were bleeding. Okay, so you mean unlike what happened in the last Studcast TV when Golden and Norville Pearl harbored you guys? Yeah. Yeah. I know. We got even, man. So, <laughs> so when we got our eyes on them, man, and we could see them, we didn't know they were going to be coming on TV, but, but we had them in front of us. And, uh, and uh, so it wasn't just me and Rob bleeding this next time. It was those two guys as well. So Les brought out the fact, man, that Jimmy Golden at this point was the only wrestler that night that didn't return to the ring for the pole battle roar. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'd had this really bloody Southeastern tag match right before the battle roar. And uh, so uh, Golden didn't show up. And uh, everybody went back into these battle roars. So it was very unusual for him not to show up. And uh, Norvell, who had been bloody, I had been bleeding. Uh, had, you know, there had been several guys that had been bloody on this card. And we all went back into the battle royal, but uh, Golden wasn't there. And, uh, you know, so uh, that was kind of odd. Uh, and uh, so, uh, so you know, it was just the beginning of an entire week, man, in which uh, he didn't show up. Hmm. He was booked in all these towns the Saturday night. He was in Harlan the next night. He didn't come to Harlan. He didn't come to any of the matches for the entire next week. Wow. So, you know, by the end of the, by the end, of, you know, that week, uh, the question was, uh, where's Jimmy Golden, man? <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. Jimmy Golden? So Les asked that question. Basically, he said, you know, where is Jimmy? You know, and, and, and so I had an answer. You know, I had a cute little answer for him. You know, I said, uh, you know the old saying, Les, about, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough get going? I said, well, in Jimmy Golden's case, uh, he said, I said, that saying is just a little bit different, you know. Uh, in his case, is when the going gets tough, Jimmy Golden gets gone. Les <laughs> <So, laughs> got a big pop out of the studio, mm -hmm. got a big pop out mm -hmm. of it. And, uh, and then our next opponents, Tor Tanaka and Mr. Fuji, managed by Gorgeous George Jr., they entered the studio because they were in the first TV match of the day. So Les asked Rob and I to stay with him for some comments at the set. But it turned out, man, there, <laughs> there wasn't much we could say about that match because those two monster talents, man, the Tanaka and Fuji, oh, gosh, they were good. They just basically destroyed their poor, <laughs> poor foes, man. It, 
quick like. It didn't last very long. So <laughs> after that match, Gorgeous George Jr., uh, who was managing in the two of the three championship matches on the card the following Friday night, had plenty to say, man. Uh, he, he had his first interview uh, about his how his guys were going to win the matches uh, in his first interview in the show. He made a big point about it. But then before he entered that, ended that interview, he picked up on that missing Jimmy Golden comment that I made. And he threw in a comment of his own about the missing Jimmy Golden. You know? mm-hmm. And uh, so Gigi says, you know, uh, Jimmy Golden, he said, uh, less, uh, Jimmy Golden's one of the best wrestlers in the world. And he said he certainly deserves more respect and love from the fans and especially his two family members that were out here a minute ago making fun of him. <laughs> said, you know, because just because nobody knows where he is. I mean, what the heck's going on here? And he goes, mm. you know, he could have been kidnapped. For all anybody knows, you know, and right. and there's the Fullers, man. They they they're gonna pay for this, man, for what the nasty comment they made about Jimmy next Friday night. And he said, you know, and uh, history's gonna be made right here in Southeastern Wrestling next Friday night. Hmm, that was very unusual, wasn't it? Don't you think? I mean, for a main event star to just simply disappear, stud. What's up? Man, I'd, I'd never seen anything like that. Unless, you know, someone was, got very upset with the wrestling company, with the promotion or with the booker, and he left with no notice. You know, he just got mad and he, and he packed his clothes and he was gone. But to me, you know, uh, the making the wrestling history part, the next Friday night, the little line that Gigi threw in in his interview made, more, made me ask more questions than where was Jimmy, basically. What was he talking about? You know, that there's going to be history made the following Friday night. So the next match was about to begin. It was Norvell Austin in it. And that was scheduled to have been Jimmy Golden and his partner on that TV show. But Jimmy wasn't there, so Norvell had to wrestle in a single match. So on his way to the set, uh, uh, he came by the desk, and he had a quick comment of his own. You know, and he, it was about his upcoming United States junior heavyweight title match. He's going to be wrestling on the next card against Tony Charles for the U.S. title. And uh, so before Norvell could say anything, Les, you know, was always so concerned about the TV show. He asked, he asked him right away, he says, where's Jimmy Golden? You know, so Norvell didn't answer the question at all, mm-hmm. you know, but he he turned the question completely around, man, in a totally different direction. He asked Les, he says, how many times, Les Thatcher, have you ever seen three championship matches end up with three new champions on the same night? That's a pretty good question. Very interesting question right there that Norville asked. So what was the answer to that question, Ron? Well, honestly... You know, once I heard the question, I could never remember any wrestling event that had three title matches where all three of the champions lost their belts in that same night. Wow. You know? Yeah. It was like, wow. You know, it, that, that was a crazy thing that he brought, brought up. Uh, what an unreal suggestion, you know. And if it was, if it possibly happened uh, on this card, this card would have a shot at being an all-time record event. So Tony Charles uh, joined Les at the set after Norvell uh, went in the ring for the second match. And uh, during the course of that wrestling lesson, man, that Norvell was handling out to his opponent was a guy named Rick Connors, who trained a lot of wrestlers in Knoxville. Pretty good wrestler, but Norvell was giving him a wrestling lesson. But Tony's sitting there with Les, and they got to discussing this subject that Norvell had brought up about the three championships changing hands in one night. You know, uh, so Norvell, basically on the end of this match, boy, he rattled Connor's brain, man. He hit him with one of those diving headbutts, and Connor's went flying backwards <laughs> straight through the ropes out on the concrete. Then Norvell rolled him back in the ring for the pin. <laughs> uh, match segment closed with both Les and Charles admitting that they had never seen three belts in three matches change hands on the same event ever. All right, so this is really becoming a very interesting TV show about potentially never before three titles changing hands in three matches on the same event. All right, so now let's move to the personality profile. What'd you have there? 
Well, the third champion on that upcoming card was going to profile. And all of a sudden, you know, that, that where was Jimmy Golden question that kind of opened up the show had changed to something entirely different at this point. So Dick Slater, he was heavily taped up, man. And, uh, and he hobbled out to the profile set with Les uh, because uh, he'd gotten the heck beat out of him the night before. And, uh, you know, he was, he, uh, once he got to the set, uh, they watched. Uh, he wrestled in his championship match. And uh, he was, if he won, he had a partner. Uh, his partner was Kevin Sullivan. And uh, they had wrestled in a match in which he was going to get five minutes with Gorgeous George Jr. if he and Kevin won the match. So, uh, you know, uh, they're watching what happened. After the match was over, uh, Slater gets his five minutes. Uh, he convinces Kevin Sullivan, his partner, uh, you know, this was the night before, that, uh, you know, that uh, please stay here because I expect the Stomper and the Smirnoff going to come back and they're going to stop me from beating the hell out of gorgeous George Jr. here in this five minutes, <laughs> which was, you know, <laughs> that was pretty logical, you know. Yeah. So it showed as soon as uh, Slater got his hands on Gigi, I mean, the moment he touched Gigi, it wasn't the Stomper and Smirnoff that he should have been worried about. It was his own friend, Kevin Sullivan. Hmm. Kevin Sullivan shocked a huge, we had a good crowd, man. He, he shocked the crowd. He turned heel for the first time in his career, man. So just three weeks after Jimmy Golden had turned heel for the first time in his career against my father and I, here was Kevin Sullivan. Uh, you know, and uh, not only did he not stop the interference, that uh, once he let the Stomper and Smirnoff just come straight in the ring, and once they started on on uh, S- Slater, then Kevin joined in. And so now it was Kevin, Smirnoff, Stomper and Gigi all beating the heck out of Slater. They had to be carried from the ring on a stretcher, man. They, wow. they really did a job on it. So wow. Slater was scheduled uh, in this upcoming uh, week uh, to defend his Southeastern belt against the Mongolian Stomper, managed by Gorgeous George Jr. the next Friday night. So again, this subject comes up about the, uh, it's kind of like a new theme on this TV show. Uh, Dick Slater, you know, if he lost his belt, along with Robert Nye losing the Southeastern tag belt, and then if Tony Charles lost the U.S. Junior belt all in the same night, uh, would that make history? Would, would, would that be wrestling history if something like that were to happen? Wow. I mean, that's a huge statement, Stud. And if it happened, it could be true. So now who was on next? Well, the next batch began with the roar of booze, man, for the guy that they had just seen in the personality profile, Kevin Sullivan. And it was Kevin Sullivan's first ever match as a heel on TV. But, boy, he was ready for it, man. You would have thought he'd been healing his entire career. The studio never stopped booing him because Kevin's opponent never even got to make a single comeback. Kevin just trounced the guy. I mean, wow, and just loved it. And he, uh, you know, he threw he threw birds at the crowd and everything he could do. He just, they, they hated him, man, right off the bat. So the last match on the TV show was the Mongolian Stomper, managed by Gorgeous George Jr. And uh, as always, boy, uh, the Stomper just teed off, man, on, on a, one another unlucky opponent in that TV show. Uh, Gorgeous George Jr. ended the show by again predicting wrestling history was going to be made the next Friday night. That Norvell Austin was going to win the United States Junior Heavyweight Belt to Tony Charles that his Japanese super team of Tor Tanaka and Mr. Fuji were going to walk away with the Southeastern belts. They called us the Fuller Punks. And his Mongolian stomper was going to regain his Southeastern belt from that idiot Dick Slater. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that's an extremely good TV show. I can't wait to hear if the heels prediction was correct that all three titles would change the next Friday night and wrestling history would be made, what, once again? So so what happened, Ron? Well, Lord Alfred Hayes, like I said, uh, straight out of the AWA, man, who is becoming a star there in the AWA at that point in 1979, uh, 
he and Eddie Mansfield had a tremendous man, 15-minute time limit match. I went out and watched it because I, I hadn't seen Alfred work in years. And, wow, what a great match they had. Then uh, in the second match, Alexis Smirnoff got a win over the young Jerry Roberts, who was going to improve dramatically, man, in the next three years or so before making his debut in the southeastern Gulf Coast as Jock Rougeau. So uh, Jerry Roberts, uh, and I think he was working basically in the mid-American territory of Nick Goulas right next door to us. That's why I had him on the card. I had never seen uh, Rougeau work, and uh, so it was my first chance to see Jerry Roberts. And uh, and that during the course of that night, I got to talk to Jock a little bit, and I realized that... Uh, that uh, you know, he was a star. He 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 was the son of a real star from Montreal. So then Kevin Sullivan uh, got off to a great start as a heel. His first uh, big time match uh, in a big arena, and uh, he got a win over Dean Ho from Hawaii. Uh, fans love Dean, but uh, you know Kevin was Kevin was he really took to being a heel man. So then it was the time for the three back-to-back championship matches that, you know, this, this may be, may, may be history making night, right? So the first was for the United States junior heavyweight belt of a champion, Tony Charles versus Norvell Austin. And uh, so Charles was giving Norvell man a wrestling lesson. You know, Charles was a great wrestler. Norvell was a good wrestler too, but he could not keep up with Charles. But the uh, first time Norvell took over and he really got Charles down he threw him out of the ring, and uh, and then he drew the referee to the far side of the ring, away from where Charles was laying on the concrete. And then suddenly, man, <laughs> a guy with a hoodie hoodie on and uh, and wearing cowboy boots from the back of the back of the the uh, ringside section, uh, which was ra- on a raised area of the amphitheater. Uh, you know. Uh, he came uh, running to the ring. This guy just came running to the ring. Charles was down on his hands and knees on the concrete, tried to get up, and the guy kicked him in the head with his cowboy boots and then ran out the entrance where the ringside people came through to get to their seats. So Norvell was about to keep the referee with him, you know. He was able to keep the referee with him, you know, and kept his back turned. And, uh, gosh, the guy only kicked. All he did was kick Charles in the head and, uh, you know, so he was gone before the referee ever turned around and looked. The referee never saw the guy. And, uh, you know, so Norvell got out of the ring, man, and uh, he threw the unconscious Charles. He, he knocked him out uh, back into the ring, and he covered him for the first win. Wow. So how was the crowd responding to all of this? Well, it happened so fast, man, that when they first saw the guy appear at ringside, the, they all went silent. You know, it's like, what, what the, who's that? And then, then you know, uh, once a guy kicked Tony in the head and it ran out, uh, then, uh, you know, Charles, Norvell came over to get Charles to throw him back into the ring. And by that point, the, the fans were screaming at the referee, you know, hey, you know, they were trying to tell him what happened. But the poor referee, man, Norvell had done a good job of keeping his attention away from what happened out there. And uh, he had no idea what had even happened, much less, you know, what the fans were talking about. So uh, as soon as Norville got the three count, man, he just went straight out of, scooted out of the ring right where the timekeeper was, who kept the belts, and grabbed his belt, and, uh, and away he went to the dressing room, man. Wow. Carried it to the dressing room. Wow. All right, so that crowd had to be buzzing after that match. So what happened in the next next championship match with you and your brother, I think you were defending against Tanaka and Fuji, managed, of course, by Gorgeous George Jr. Well, you're right, man. The crowd was still buzzing. You know, that they, it was like, what happened? You know, who was that guy? You know, and uh, so when me and Rob entered the ring for our championship match, and this one was a wild match. Well, at the end of it, uh, you know, Fuji was bleeding in this match, and uh, I was on top of Gorgeous George Jr. outside of the ring. The referee was outside of the ring with me and and Jr. Rob put the fuller leg lock on Tanaka, middle of the ring. Everyone in the amphitheater was on their feet, man. This match was over. Wow, Rob got the ring. He's got the hold. Uh, you know, uh, all, all that's got to happen is the referee's got to get back in the ring and do his job. 
And that's when Jimmy Golden made his entrance back in the Southeastern. He came running out of the Hills dressing room. He went straight in the ring. You know, uh, referee still outside with me and Gigi. And uh, he went right to Rob. Rob's laying flat on his back, man, helpless in that. When you've got that fuller leg lock, you can't get up, you know. And uh, and Rob was pumping Tanaka's leg. I don't think Rob ever saw him coming. And he stomped Rob right in the face, man, knocked him cold. Uh, so Jimmy immediately left the room, ran back to the dressing room, left the ring, and then Tanaka got out of the hole. But he couldn't get to his feet. Rob got him really good with the darn with the with the hold, man. Uh, that thing was really, it really hurts. And uh, so Fuji crawled over and you know and covered Rob. And then the referee finally got back in the ring and he he made the three count on Rob. And uh, the second championship of the night had changed hands. Wow. Okay. What a strange night this was becoming. A mysterious fan getting involved for one championship win. Where's Jimmy Golding? Well, we found out he's returning to get another one. And now one more necessary for a first ever record. Three out of three championships changing hands in the same event. So what happened in the last match of the night? Well, it was for the Southeastern belt. Dick Slater versus Mongolian Stomper managed by Gorgeous George Jr. It was a lumberjack rules match. So there were wrestlers all the way around the ring. You know, and again, this was another wild match. I mean, it ended up with everybody, including all the lumberjacks and even Stomper and the referee uh, on the outside fighting each other. I mean, you know, that was the thing about these lumberjack matches. You you were sometimes standing five feet away from the guy you had just wrestled in the match before. So, you know, and you're, uh, everybody's mad at everybody at this point. So this turned into a brawl. You got all the lumberjacks fighting outside. You got Stomper out there. You got the referee out there. And uh, so when the referee left the ring to try to get some control, the only person in the ring was Dick Slater. And he was just standing in the ring watching the fight down below him, man. You know, he didn't go out there and get involved in it. He was pretty smart about that. But then Kevin Sullivan, man, who had turned on Slater the week before, he was out on the contract, out on the concrete with the other lumberjacks, and uh, he crawled under the ring to the far side and came up behind Dick Slater. Slater never saw it. And uh, Slater's still watching the fight down there. And uh, Sullivan pulled something out of his trunks, put it on his hand, and he knocked the champion out, the last champion of the night. He left the ring and went straight to the dress room. But some of the fans were so pissed off at this point, <laughs> upset with what uh-huh. is happening here, that they cut him off. And they, then the police had to go and help him get to the dress room. Some wow. of them stayed with the melee on the floor out there, but some of them had to go help Kevin. And uh, so Stomper rolled back in the ring, uh, covered Slater, and the rest was history. Wow. I mean, you, you got to be kidding. This is crazy. Stomper got the win and all three championships changed hands in the same night. That's what happened, Dave. <laughs> and you know, and, and gosh, it was such a crazy night. It, it was going to lead. This is going to lead to a real crazy TV in the next studcast that we're going to have, you know, because, uh, you know, and an even crazier card. For the following week, uh, there's going to be a lot of crazy stuff happens because of this three championships changing in the same night. How did you guys do on attendance for that one? Uh, well, it came up about a 200 fans. For, uh, it came up to about 3,500, which, uh, mm-hmm. which compared to the previous years and it being the summertime and no wrestling war, it was a horrible crowd. But it yeah, was right. not a not a horrible crowd. It, it was actually. Uh, the best one since the war started again. So, you know, uh, wow. It w- sad to say 3,500, uh, we were kind of happy to see. Happy to see that. All right. But what about the all-stars? How did they do the next night? What was that like? Well, I don't have their card, man, for, for this on, on this studcast. Uh, you know, I don't know exactly who was on it, but, uh, but I've, I found a card and it's for, It'll be on the next studcast. I'm actually going to have a, a complete card 
that uh, All Stars ran on the on the night after us. So all I do have is the, my spotter that went to the, their matches uh, mm-hmm. told me again that they were their crowd was not growing, but it was uh, maintaining right around probably a thousand fans. Wow, it seems like they're kind of stuck there, and I wonder if they're going to move any farther than that. This has really been absolutely awesome. The first part of this studcast. What a wild night and a strange way to set an all-time championship match record. So when we return after the break, we're going to be headed to the Gulf Coast Territory, headed down south that was changing by the minute. The Gulf Coast Territory down south is after the break on this studcast. Hey, you know, Ron doesn't mention his blockbuster book, Brutus, often enough. You can find it and reviews on it at Amazon, Novel Brutus, or his website, tnstud.com. Click Stud Store. As an author, his first book has been highly acclaimed all over the world. If you have not already read it, you are missing one of the most thrilling novels in history. It has a very impressive 4.5 rating with more than 50 reviews many comparing it to Jaws. The only place you can get it personally autographed for only $29.99 is tnstud.com. Click Stud Store and saddle up for terror. All right, Studcast fans, welcome back in. Usually, Ron, when we get to this southeastern Gulf Coast territory, things were looking up, it seems like, kind of obviously, compared to Tennessee, where the Knoxville war was going on up north. So I have no idea after last week's record crowd and then the disaster that followed it, what to expect from this week's card. So what we got, what do we got here? Well, when you think of it, Dave, uh, who, who did we lose last week, man, on this Dothan show? Uh, and, and I mean, lost for good. Uh, we lost Terry, the Hulk Boulder. Uh, he was gone to Memphis. Uh, he's not going to be coming back to Southeastern. Uh, and uh, we also lost one of the hottest heels in the territory, Billy Spears, who was maybe going to jail right? <laughs> because mm-hmm. of what he was trying to do to Austin Idol, you know. So mm-hmm. it was kind of like starting all over again, Southeastern Gulf Coast. I mean, uh, you know, the party was over, man, you know. <laughs> And it was time to get back to work. Uh, we, and we had a lot of work to do, man, to recover from those two guys being gone for good. Yeah, I guess that's a good way to put it, Stud. So, so who is on this back-to-work card in Mobile, Alabama's Expo Hall, Wednesday, August 1st, 1979? Well, the opening match was Eddie Sullivan uh, against, uh, you know, with no manager. Right. I mean, Eddie Sullivan already, he always had, you know, Billy Spears in his corner. Well, Eddie Sullivan's out there by himself against Ron Slinker. Then Herb Calvert uh, is against the gladiator who was out there by himself. He's got no, he's got no Billy Spears either. Right. So you got a big change there going on. And, and then there was a special event next man that had two of the best wrestlers in the world on this, on this main event. Uh, you know, and not a special event, but I think it's as good as the main event. So one of them, one of these guys is making his first appearance ever uh, in Mobile. And that was 425-pound Crusher Blackmail, Blackwell, you know, and he's looking across the ring, man, at a world-famous heel returning to Mobile after six-week run in Japan, Ox Baker. So then the next match after that was a, Basically, a reborn 1979 tag team, the Assassins, that actually to these Mobile fans brought back a lot of memories, man. They hadn't been seen together in Mobile since the fall of 1978, almost a year earlier. And uh, at that point, they were being managed by Rip Tyler. And, you know, so, and uh, they'd had a tag team, been a, They've been, they basically ruled tag team wrestling in Southeastern Gulf Coast for almost a year, almost the entire year in 1978. So they were facing actually an, another dominating team that had just literally, <laughs> literally booted their manager out of the business. Literally, I'm talking about the Samoans beat Billy Spears up so badly, he never came back, you know? So, uh, you know, they, these guys, uh, and by doing that, uh, they actually became heels 
big heels got over because they they almost murdered Billy Spears in front of that big Dothan crowd in the football stadium. So the main event was for the Southeastern Championship belt of Austin Idol. And he was defending against some of the best. So he had been defending in the last few weeks against some of the best wrestlers in the world. He would wrestle Ernie Ladd. He'd beat Ernie Ladd. He'd beat the Hulk. He'd beat Tony Atlas. He beat Jack Briscoe, uh, to name a few of these guys, you know. And on this night, he was going to be against the extremely popular in the South, man, Mr. Wrestling Number 2. That is a really strong five-card match filled with some really big names and new combinations that should be interesting for the future. So how did the TV show go setting this whole card up? What was it like? Well, it opened with the Samoans uh, sitting with Charlie Platt. They had their belts on the desk in front of them. Uh, Charlie announced that fans were going to see a lot during this TV show that, from that historical event that had happened the night before in Dothan, Alabama. So, you know, he, he, and he said, you know, beginning right here with these two guys here, the Southeastern Tag Champions, that made some history of their own last night. That's the way Charlie put it, basically. <laughs> so they rolled the tape, and it showed uh, the Samoans uh, – uh, leaving the Dargon twins laying there, man, in the ring. And then uh, it showed the whole deal the, with, with Billy Spears, you know, and they'd been having some problems with Billy Spears and making a bunch of mistakes over the last two or three weeks. So they set that 8,000 fans in that football stadium in Dothan on fire, man. They literally started taking Billy Spears apart, man. And when they did, the crowd went crazy, you know, and they, they sent him out on a stretcher, man, and ended his wrestling career forever. You know, he, he never came back. I don't think he ever did anything in wrestling after that. So this video was a real surprise for TV fans that hadn't been there at that big event in Dothan, you know, the night before. They, they were like, wow. But for the people in the studio who were all there probably the night before, this was a celebration, man. They were like, wow, they loved these Samoans. All of a sudden, these guys that they had hated because of Spears mostly were now big stars. So the St Samoans that stayed with Charlie at the set, uh, then they watched the reborn assassin team that had dominated tag team wrestling in Southeastern for the first year, for its whole first year. Hmm. And it was the, 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 the assassin's first appearance together since that since way in the fall of 1978. Wow. So the, the, the mass wrestlers in black, man, that's what I call them, the, the assassins, made it clear why they had returned. And they let the Samoans know it. Samoans were out there, you know, uh, with Charlie. And, uh, and these guys, every time they did something devastating, they made a point of pointing their fingers right toward the Samoans sitting at the desk, like saying, hey, we're coming for you guys. You know, we're here for you. Right? And the fans were for, you know, uh, they were um, they were one of the best uh, tag teams ever, man, these Samoans. And, uh, and, uh, and so is this team of the Assassins. Then Crusher Blackwell, uh, he joined Charlie at the set, uh, and he watched his match against Ox Baker from the night before. And Charlie had already told me, he said, Ron, it was one of the bloodiest matches I ever saw, man. He said, he said, I don't think the fans had ever seen anything quite like it. Wow. And uh, he said, you know, and he said, what was really amazing, he goes, when you thought about it, he says, these two wrestlers had never even met each other. They had never wrestled each other. They had never even met each other. So he said, when it was over, Blackwell, for the second week in a row, he went in to the TV. Blackwell watched this bloody match between the two of them. And then he went into the TV. He went into the ring after that. And boy, Charlie said he wowed that crowd, man. He did some amazing drop kicks. And uh, he leapfrogged over one of the guys, the guy he was wrestling. I mean, he did some stuff. He was so agile for a big man. He was truly, truly amazing. Then the personality profile was with Austin Idol. It began with a video from the night before where Idol was at ringside. That was the big NWA world title match between Harley and the Hulk. And it showed Idol uh, walking around the ring, snapping photos. He had this bright flash attachment on his camera. 
And uh, and that flash had a direct impact on the end of the world title match. So, you know, and uh, and and Charlie confronted him with the fact of that. You know, he jumped on the apron, uh Oak had the had the uh, his bear hug on on uh, on Harley and uh Idol stuck that camera right in his face and hit him with the flash and uh and uh, he, you know, Hulk dropped his hold and bang, all of a sudden he got schoolboyed and he lost the title though his chance to win the world championship, basically because of Austin Idol. So the subject was kind of changed at that point, you know, and it turned around to where he started talking about Idol, about his next defense uh, against the legendary Mr. Wrestling 2 from the Georgia Territory. Then uh, uh, they showed a wrestling uh, an interview uh, that was done in Atlanta, Georgia, and sent into the studio with Wrestling 2 talking about how confident he was that he could beat Austin Idol. And then Idol's comments uh, made uh, made the upcoming uh, three nights in the next week uh, against uh, Wrestling 2 very personal, man. Uh, Idol said some nasty things about Wrestling 2, and uh, mm. all of a sudden uh, you got great wrestler coming in to try to win the Southeastern Championship from a strong champion at that point. Yeah, that's a pretty good personality profile. So how do you follow that? What came next? Well, Idol again, you know, and he had basically <laughs> went straight into the ring. He had his tights on and everything, and he basically made another statement. Uh, this time, uh, you know, he did it with his wrestling skills. He used his figure four leg lock, which back in those days, nobody was using it. You know, Ric Flair wasn't even around at that point. You know, not for Southeastern fans anyway. So the show ended in the same way the Tennessee TV show did, you know, uh, basically with the monster that in the Tennessee territory, which was the Mongolian stopper I ended up with in the last match. And down here in the Gulf Coast on its TV, its monster was Ox Baker. So uh, Ox, man, was so visually scary, man, to fans all over the world. Uh, he didn't have to do too much, man. Uh, he just, he looked so mean, so nasty. Uh, and he did, uh, you know, he, he used a very painful hold for for a submission on the match that he was in. And he hammerlocked the guy, which basically took the guy's arm and ran it up his back. And then he ran his arm underneath the guy's arm. Of, he was behind him. And then he turned his back to his opponent and he picked the guy up and pushed him up in the air on his back and held him up there with the wrestler's arm uh, behind his back and all his weight on his arm. Wow. So it was like, there was no way to get out of that hold. And, and Jesus, Charlie said, he said, he said, Ron, I think they heard him scream in downtown Dothan. <laughs> because, <laughs> wow. Because he said, it, and then he said, the Hawks refused to release him when he gave up. You know, he said he just kept bouncing him on his own arm. And mm -hmm. he said it was breaking the guy's arm. And uh, he said, finally, Crusher Blackwell came to the ring. And as soon as he got in, the Hawks left the ring before they touched. But, uh, he goes, wow, it was a horrible kill because I'd never seen that anybody do that to a guy before. You're talking about two humongous stars right there in southeastern Gulf Coast, of course. And I had never had the chance to see either of those, Oxbaker or Crusher Blackwell, none of those matches that summer. I, I wouldn't have known that they even happened if it wasn't for the stud cast, Ron. So I appreciate that. That's pretty cool, knowing that, that big guys like that really did clash here close to home. That's what makes what you do every week so special to me. So I could kick myself in the butt for not seeing at least one of their matches way back when. All right, so how about the result of the card in Mobile, Alabama, August 1st, 1979? Well, Ron Slinker won over Eddie Sullivan, which uh, nobody was surprised by that. The Gladiator beat Herb Calvert. And then the first title match of the night, was for the southeastern belt of Austin Idol, defending against Mr. Wrestling Number Two, and uh, this one started a little differently. Uh, the Gladiator, who had just won the match before over Herb Calvert, uh, and he was without his manager. There was no Billy Spears anymore. He came to the ring and he did his own talking, and he challenged the winner. the The match hadn't started yet. They hadn't even been introduced yet. Austin Idol nor Wrestling Two. 
But uh, he's, the gladiator got in the ring, and he said, you know, I want to wrestle the winner of this match next week. And, uh, and then he got a little bit of a cheer, you know, because he said, uh, you know, he said, I would have already been the world champion, you know. Uh, I mean, I would have already been the southeastern champion. I'd already have your belt, Austin Idle, he said, pointing at Idle. You know, but if it hadn't have been for my stupid manager, Billy Spears. So as soon as he said <laughs> something nasty about Spears, the crowd, the crowd that cheered, you know, they were happy as heck to see Spears gone. So wrestling two, he got right in the gladiator's face. You know, he wrestling two was a real cocky guy, man. He didn't want people, uh, you know, uh, taking the spotlight. So Idol used that, you know, and then when Wrestling 2 got in the gladiator's face, they got the jawing back and forth at each other. Well, Idol, he's a pretty good heel. He recognized this is a good spot for me to get him. <laughs> so he did, man. He, he attacked Wrestling 2 from behind, man, and he never gave him a chance for a comeback. He beat Wrestling 2 in less than five minutes, man. Wow, wow. <laughs> you know, he, he just trounced him right there. So it was another major win for Idol over a big name. Idol had been beating some big names. He just added another one to his list. <laughs> well, I uh, know this is a very unusual way to start a match. So I have to ask, why did the Booker do that, Stud? What was uh, what was behind that? Well, you know, you mean behind uh, having two heels basically yeah, go I, against? I, yeah, I think basically. so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you know, it was, it was it, well. What Louis had a Booker's problem. Uh, the biggest baby face in the territory, the Hulk, had just left. He's right. gone. Right. He had two good baby faces named Fields and Latham that were he weren't he wasn't using anymore in the crew. So Louis was extremely short of baby faces. He didn't have enough guys to cover the baby face slots. So he just moved the gladiator and put him in the slot against the another heel, basically. Uh, Austin Idol. Uh, so, uh, you know, he used the gladiator to temporarily fill that spot till he got himself uh, more baby faces in there. Okay. So again, I learned something new today. It's great to have someone with your experience to answer questions like this so easily. Another reason why Studcast are indeed so unique. All right. So what about the next match? Who was in that one? Well, it was a special event. And not just in name, in name only, but in truth, because these two wrestlers were really special. As you mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, Crusher Blackwell was going to be facing off against Hawksbaker. And just like they had done in the first meeting in Dothan, Alabama, five days earlier, this match also ended in a bloody match, man, with no decision. Uh, nobody got a win. The referee stopped the match. I mean, it just was out of control. The guy's bleeding like crazy. And uh, so then in the last match, Louis said, uh, told me the champions, Samoans, after the fans had seen this TV show where they basically ended the career, Billy Spears, when they came out of the dressing room, Louis said, you know, he was concerned. Though, how are these guys going to do without Billy Spears? And he said, they got a standing ovation, man, on their way to the ring from the fans that had watched the TV. Mm -hmm. And saw what they had done to Billy Spears. <laughs> so Louis also said the assassins uh, were booed out of the building. He didn't know how they were going to do either, you know, because this was their very first week back together. Uh, it was, he said it was amazing, man, since they hadn't been in a match in Mobile in more than nine months. He goes, wow. Then he said the match ended up uh, – in one of those Mobile riots, like the one I was in my first time in Mobile when I got arrested the first mm -hmm. night that we ran Mobile. He said the fans were very upset because the assassins won the belts from the Samoans. Mm -hmm. And they did it by one of them loading in his mask with an object behind the referee's back. He headbutted Afa, one of the big Samoans, and uh, and he, he basically uh, got the pin over Afa and and on the way to the dressing room, as was the case with Mobile, it all broke loose, obviously. <laughs> wow, another Mobile riot. That city had to be some of the wildest fans in wrestling. So how about the attendance for this big Expo Hall crowd? Well, it wasn't a sellout, that, that's for sure, you know. But uh, 
Wow, it was when you thought about it. When I look back at it, it's a five-match card, and it had a main eventer, one, Crusher Blackwell, that had never been in a match in Mobile before. It had a main event tag match with the Assassins, who nobody knew whether they were going to be over or not, you know. And uh, so there was a whole lot of ifs on this card, but it's, we still had four thousand fans in in Expo Hall. So wow, uh, it wasn't a bad night. Okay, I tell you what, I can't believe we're out of time again. These studcasts are so full of unique information, wonderful history. They just fly by. And I'm sorry, too, but we're not going to be able to get to a learning tree question today. All right, thank goodness, Ron, that you're doing those Ask the Stud question and answer shows over on YouTube Southeastern Rewind channel. I think that's where a lot of fans really enjoy themselves. Fans, if you want to hear some of those great questions from all over the world and amazing answers, you can check those out. Ron, you have already left some hints about next week and studcast number 310. Can you believe that? So where do we ride next week? Well, yeah, it's hard to imagine, man, that I've done over 300 of these days. Yeah. In fact, I think next one is 310, and I think that is, that's going to be the sixth year. <laughs> the sixth year. Wow. The end of the sixth year that we have been doing these studcasts. Yeah. So uh, we're going to ride Max, uh, back into Tennessee, man, obviously. And because of all the crazy things that happened on this card and this studcast, the next card uh, is going to end up being one of the biggest of southeastern Knoxville summer, the entire summer of 1979. We got that one rained out, uh, but uh, we're going to have on the next one, we're going to have all three titles again at stake mm -hmm. in the next studcast. There's going to be a loser leave southeastern match. And a hair versus hair match in which there has to be a winner. So somebody's going to get their head shaved next week <laughs> as well. So talk about a great card. Wow. You know, and the next episode also has one of the most unique Southeastern TV shows ever. And uh, with a heels celebration, I mean, the, the heels are going to get control <laughs> of the TV. And so it's a, uh, should be very interesting. All right, let me see if I got this right, Stud. On the next Studcast in Tennessee, someone was definitely getting their head shaved. Someone was leaving the territory. All three of the belts that changed hands this Studcast would be on the line again next Studcast, plus a crazy TV show. Uh, that's correct, Dave. I mean, a lot of lots happening up north at this point, and uh, you know, and I want to also announce a. One of the rare cards, you know, I'm also going to give people an entire card that I have I was able to find uh, that was on the, the next night after the next uh, studcast on the Friday night, the following Saturday, uh, the whole lifestyle card uh, from the Knoxville Five. And then, then we're going to head south into the southeastern Gulf Coast territory where we're going to have a lumberjack match, a return southeastern tag championship match. And an extremely rare heel versus heel match that's going to lead to a championship match. So we'll also talk about uh, rumors down south that another group was setting up to do the same thing, if you can imagine this, <laughs> the Knoxville Five were doing up north. Uh, wow. Are you kidding, Ron? There was, <laughs> there was going to be problems in the Gulf Coast similar to what was happening in Tennessee. It seems like it never stops in your world. All right. These stud casts are becoming absolutely phenomenal. Hey folks on Facebook, go to Ron Fuller Welch, the Tennessee stud right there on Facebook. Like, and follow him there to become friends with a living legend. Same thing on Twitter, Ron Fuller Welch on Twitter. You can follow him there too. Check out the fantastic website, tnstud.com, tnstud.com. That's the home base for the Tennessee stud for every stud cast ever done. It's all there. 43 Super Studcast and the Stud Store, all kinds of souvenirs, including Ron's thrilling lion novel called Brutus. Get your personally autographed copy there. He will write it to you if you like. All right, his YouTube Southeastern Rewind, it's red hot. It's been more than 300, it's got more than 314 videos. The last 88 Studcast. 52 stud stories, and now 59 short rides with the stud, seven ask the stud question and answer shows, 
and a whole lot more is there too. You can subscribe now, YouTube Southeastern Rewind, and see the very best in old school wrestling absolutely free on YouTube. Any closing comments, Stud? Well, yeah, Dave. Uh, you know, I'd like to ever, you know, let everybody know how much I, I really appreciate, and they're listening, and uh, and hopefully they're enjoying these studcasts and uh, and their continued support, which has just been here for, for like I said, I've been doing them for six years, and uh, wow, I've had such phenomenal support, and uh, seeing my uh, seeing my uh, audience grow dramatically from the very first ones and. So, you know, and I want everybody, please take care of yourselves and others, and may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This Studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.